0: Well, if you would turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 12, we're going to be studying the subject of prayer for, I don't know how long, but we're going to be studying prayer for a while, and then after that we'll go back to our, just our, 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 weekly going through the scriptures as we were doing in the Old Testament months ago before we went off onto these several different studies. This, actually, this year I think we've been doing a topical study, so we're going to end it with prayer. Romans 12.12 12 is a pertinent passage in regards to prayer and the life of the church. And let me begin with just a question for you to think about. Why do we have prayer meetings? Why do we come together on Wednesday nights and dedicate a portion of the night to prayer? Well, I'm going to show us it's scriptural by example, what we see in scripture, and it's also scriptural in that we are exhorted by God to have a prayer meeting. You might might think of it like this as we know that we're supposed to pray as individuals. Well, this whole getting together to pray, is that actually a biblical concept? It's not only a biblical concept, we're told by God to do it. It's a time where we bind our hearts together before God. It's a time where we show our dependency upon God. Something else is that historically the church has treasured prayer meetings. It's interesting, I went online and looked at the bigger churches in our areas, in our area, areas, are in our area. And out of this, I think it was five I looked at, two of them had some form of prayer meeting. But I think if you just looked at churches in general, the prayer meeting is kind of outdated and no longer used. I think we're going to see that that's unfortunate. Historically, before there is any big movement of God, whether it be the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, uh, the Reformation, whatever it may be, or a very influential, pivotal person that comes along in church history, two things precede that movement of God. What are those two things? Prayer and the preaching of the Word. Prayer and preaching of the Word precedes almost every movement of God that you see in church history. Whether it was the Great Awakening, where where people during Jonathan Edwards' sermons would be coming undone, crying and shrieking. Tell me how I don't go to hell. Uh, It was a movement of God. And what preceded that was prayer. So Wednesday night is our time of dedicated, open prayer, right? When we come together, we're able to take our concerns and thanks before the creator of the universe. And so I want to begin by looking at the exhortation to a prayer meeting, and then in the following weeks we're going to look at, and this actually came from our our deacon meeting, as it was suggested, why don't you show us how Scripture teaches us how to pray. And so, that's where we're going to go next, is what does Scripture say about how we pray? So, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. It says this, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, there's three things stated here. One, is directed towards the future. The other thing is, presently, what you're dealing with. And then the third thing is how to persevere, connecting both of those two things together. So the future aspect is to rejoice in hope. So what is hope? Hope is looking forward to what's to come. The Christian has many things looking forward to, look forward to in hope. What do we have to look forward to? Eternal life, right? We have the return of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom that we look forward to. There's many things in the Christian life that to us should motivate us to rejoice. In fact, you think about what Paul writes in Second Timothy 4.8. He says, Henceforth there is laid out for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. You think about that. Whatever you face right now, it pales in comparison to what you will receive in Christ. A crown of righteousness will be handed to you. So hope... Is our grounds of rejoicing. We may have difficulties, but we're able to face them. Our rejoicing is not in our troubles, but rather our rejoicing is in hope itself. So, does the Christian have an abiding hope? Yes, because if you believe in eternal life, if you believe you'll receive that crown of righteousness, if you believe that Christ will one day return and consummate his kingdom, then do you have constant rejoicing that is part of the Christian life? Yes. Yes, as long as there's hope. There's constant, continual rejoicing. Paul even writes in chapter 8, in verse 24 of Romans, For in this hope we are saved. So it connects hope with our salvation. It's why we have a different disposition as a, as a Christian than those that are in the world. We don't mourn like those who are mourning, do we? We don't suffer as those who are suffering in the world. Why? Because we're able to rejoice in the hope that we have. We're able to face life differently. We are able to set our eyes heavenward, and so our happiness, our joy is not contingent upon circumstances, but rather... It's a rejoicing and a joy that we have in the hope that we have now in Christ. So that's the future aspect of this admonition. We're to rejoice in hope. The second thing is, we're to be patient in tribulation. What does it mean to be patient? Does anyone ever pray for patience? It means to endure despite difficulties. That's what it means to have patience, endure despite difficulties. And specifically here it says, be patient, that is to endure in tribulation. And that tribulation, in this context, in Romans, likely refers to persecution. In chapter 5, in verse 3, It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And so there's this aspect of Romans that might have had to do with persecution. You know, one thing, when we look back at the first century church, we kind of have this conception that that Rome was just persecuting Christians all over the place. That's not the case. Diocletian had a massive persecution, and Nero had a massive persecution. But other than that... There was a lot of peace. Christians were granted a lot of liberty. So when we read of persecution that came in the New Testament, it wasn't that they were constantly under persecution, but there was always the threat of it. Now, is persecution part of the Christian life? (coughs) Excuse me, yes. If you look at 2 Timothy 3.12. This is a verse that bothers me and may bother you too. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why would that bother me? Well... I'd like to think I live a godly life so I wonder why am I not facing it? Same thing with, with what Jesus says in the Sermon on Mount, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you for righteousness sake. I wonder okay why am I not being persecuted? But it is supposed to be a common part of the Christian life and we face it In varying ways. Uh, We prayed for Turkmenistan tonight. They face persecution in in a very severe way. That Praise be to the Lord that we're not facing. But they face it. But we do face persecution in some sense. In different ways. We just haven't felt the full brunt of it. But even, what is this verse saying to us? is to endure in it. And what did the previous part say? Rejoice in hope. See the connection? You can rejoice in hope. Okay? How can I rejoice in hope? Or rather, it says, then goes patient in, in tribulation. How can I be patient and endure in tribulation? Well, I'm able to rejoice in hope. There's something greater waiting for me. Now, how do we demonstrate our hope and our patience, endurance? This is is where it gets connected to our prayer meeting. If you're wondering how these three things were connected, how, how do we endure and demonstrate our endurance and our hope? Do we endure persecution by doing nothing? Do we demonstrate hope? By doing nothing? Or do we actually demonstrate our hope and demonstrate endurance through doing something? I would say it's through doing something. And it's to be constant in prayer. That's our perseverance in prayer. How do we endure tribulation? How are we patient in tribulation? Well, to be constant in prayer. How are we able to rejoice in hope? Be constant in prayer. Now, if we take this and say, this is speaking to me as an individual, I think we missed it. Because I want you to notice this is collective. The exhortation is plural. So in other words, it's, y'all be constant in prayer. But look at the context. If you go back to verse 9, He's telling the church to be constant in prayer. He's not telling the individual to be constant in prayer. That's just assumed. This is a collective call to prayer. This is what the church is to do. The church is to gather to pray. You see in chapter 15 verse 30 of the same book where he writes this, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. To whom is he addressing? The church. And he's calling the church to get together and actually pray for him, right? So, let me ask you this question. Is collective church prayer biblical. Absolutely. Is Paul telling us that the church is to gather and pray together? Yes. Look through the book of Revelation and read how many times you find the phrase, the prayers of the saints. Is that commended that there's the prayers of the saints, where the saints are gathered together to pray to God? It's constant here. Not only is it collective, but it's constant. It means that we're continually to be doing something with effort. Let me show you a couple of glimpses of this in Acts. In chapter 1. And I know you know these verses, but I just want to highlight them. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Chapter 2, in verse 42. And they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. That word devoted is that same idea of constant. In chapter 6, verse 4, you see this is supposed to be the ministry of the elders, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Do you know how to bring a Christian pastor down a notch? Ask him about his prayer life. There's no Christian pastor that will ever say, yes, I've arrived in my prayer life. And I'm guessing the same goes for most Christians. I want to point out something about this word constant, sometimes translated devoted. It's a word used ten times in the Bible. Five of those times out of the ten, it's related to prayer. The constancy and the devotion to prayer. So it's something that we see repeatedly used, that is supposed to be applied in the life of prayer. Now there's a couple of things I think this assumes. Doesn't this assume it's not easy to pray? Especially publicly? It assumes we must make an effort. During the first century, did they have kids and schedules and work and stuff like that? Did they have those things in the first century? I th- I think so because we're all here, right? <laughs> <laughs> they 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 fa- face things that that we didn't don't face, and we face things that they didn't. It assumes we must make it a priority, doesn't it? If he says it's to be constant in prayer, and there's something else. That Paul had to say this, and he has to say it so often. what does that also assume? people aren 't doing it we need to be told we need to be told you know it's 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 funny anytime many times i 've asked people to like cover for me, and the go to thing that they'll, they'll use to teach on because it seems to be the easiest thing to teach on is prayer. How many times have you heard a message on prayer? How's our prayer life? But how many times are we told we've got to pray? And how many prayers can we find in Scripture? So there's, it's not because uh, there's not repetition of it in Scripture because there's plenty of repetition about it in Scripture. It assumes, though, that we have to be told and that we need to be told that we're to abide in prayer and to persist in prayer. And this, again, this is in the context of not the individual. This is the church being called together to pray. So Paul is calling the church to gather continually in prayer. And why is that? Well, We are not yet with Christ. We're still here, waiting to be with Christ. Remember that hope we have? We haven't received that hope in its fullness yet. So how do we commune with our elder brother? How do we commune with our father? By prayer. And we're called to do that. How do we deal with the difficulties in this world? How do we deal with tribulation and endure in tribulation? How are we patient in tribulation? How do we deal with that? Prayer. How do we set our eyes upon Christ and and do something that the world views as some sort of magical potion or some sort of pagan Thing is, as much as someone that is able to be a palm reader. That's how the world would view our prayer meetings. That we're doing something that's mythical, praying to some unknown God. But we know that we're communing with the God of the universe that has bought us with the blood of his son. Paul tells the church in Colossae, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And he is speaking to? He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the church in prayer. I'm thinking about the friends that I've that that at times have gone through difficult times. And especially when I work seasonal, I'll say, well, can I get off at a certain time or whatever and Sometimes I'll make it, sometimes I won't, but uh, they say, oh, you're going to a Bible study prayer meeting? Yes. Well, pray for me because I'm going through this. Well, come on with me and you can pray for me. Yeah, I get asked to pray for people all the time, and, and I think that many just view it as some sort of superstitious thing. That's probably because most people aren't righteous people. Christians are, right? Yeah, if they don't receive, yeah, our righteousness is from Christ, right? And And our power comes through Christ through through the prayers. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think think they think sometimes that you have some like spiritual, do not pass them, you just go straight up and your prayers. So when you say, when they ask you, A line, so. And we all do, right? Right. <laughs> we and that—that's the thing—is we do. But they do not. Have, they're not a Christian. <laughs> right. They don't have a direct line. Right. That's right. But somehow they still think that our direct line might work for them. Yeah. Right. Right. They think it. They think of it in some sort of superstitious way, almost. Yeah. I think. I think you're absolutely right. Like, you know, you've got you've got the you've got the, the big guy upstairs. You got his ear, right? They say things like that, which never, by the way, I would never use the the, the big guy upstairs. I, I I don't like that, but I'm just giving you the example of what people would say. They mm-hmm. say, I've heard it said that there's no atheist in the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people come to you when they're troubled, whether they're yep. or not. And I find that the best thing to do is pray with them right then and there. Uh, Absolutely. And, they're, and and a lot of times, they're not expecting that. No. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it can be uncomfortable. You know, I'll just say this is, and, and uh, y- you know, you and I have been out, and you've seen me do this, is that when I ask to pray with someone that I know that doesn't know Christ, I, I will, in my prayer specifically, present the gospel in some form. Um, so that if I don't have the open door to share the gospel, no no one really ever tears down prayer, especially if you just go for it. They don't know you can take them by surprise. So, <laughs> but this is what John Murray says on prayer. He says, "Prayer." This is speaking to the church. Is the means ordained of God for the supply of grace sufficient for every? Exigency and particularly against the faint-heartedness to which affliction tempts us. Prayer is grace-sufficient for everything that we will face. So you see those connections to the gathered prayer meeting and how we may have hope in difficulties and how this hope is expressed through our collective prayer life. So let me ask you this question. Is a prayer meeting biblical? Yeah. Yes. Just, you can, you can take my word for it. Go, go Google the Haystack prayer meeting. You can see how a major movement resulted from that. But historically, is the prayer meeting present in the church? Yeah. Absolutely, as part of the church. Spurgeon was known for his prayer meetings. When someone came to visit him and they asked, what's the reason for your success? He took this person, I think it was D.L. Moody, and took took D.L. Moody to his prayer meeting and said, this is why this ministry has been successful, because of the prayer meeting. So Spurgeon... He says these six things about the prayer meeting, the usefulness of it. He says one of the first uses of the prayer meeting was to encourage a discouraged people. So you think about it like that. Have you ever shown up here and you were facing something, you you were stressed, you had anxiety, or you were discouraged? Is that... Possibly ever happened in your life? Are you speaking tonight? <laughs> the prayer meeting can actually be a means to encourage people. Did you ever think about it like that? Is it like you? you we sit. Here's the 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 beauty of our Wednesday night. What do we do before we we pray? We eat well, and what do we do when we're sitting there eating? Fellowshipping—you can tell when someone's not right because you, you you have a meal with them. What a great opportunity to be able to say, "Let us pray for you tonight," and that person can be walk away encouraged. That means that there has to be some—I I don't like this word so much in this context—but a little bit of ability, like we're willing to share that with one another. We're go- you know we're going to be together for all of eternity. So we might as well get to know each other now and be comfortable right now. So this prayer time can be used, and we should think of it this way, this prayer time can be used to encourage others. We should share our concerns, we should share those things with one another, so that way we can lift one another up. Spurgeon says a second use is this, that it is the appointed place to receive power. Now that might sound strange like wait sounds kind of pentecostalish. Let me read you what Spurgeon says. He says now the great need of the church at all times is the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit says the doctrines of most churches. But how many or rather how few are there who really do believe in him? There is a mysterious supernatural energy which comes from the third person of the Blessed Trinity, which really in this age falls upon men and women, as truly as when Peter spoke in languages unknown to him, or performed miracles. And though the power of working miracles is not given now, notice his distinction here. He says, yet yeah, spiritual power is given. And this spiritual power is just as evident. And just as surely with us today, if we possess the Holy Spirit as it was with the apostles. Now, if we want to get this, the most likely place to find it is in the prayer meeting. Notice what he's saying here. He's not saying that we're going to have a repeat of Pentecost with the supernatural. But he is saying that we're going to receive the same Holy Spirit and the same power when we're praying as they were. What were they doing yeah, but, but like, what were they doing before Pentecost? Praying. Praying. Yeah, go ahead, Lane. Uh, what you just said, James five sixteen says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Yeah, yeah. amen. So, when we gather together we're, 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 to pray, we're, we're plugging into the life source. The third thing, third use, he says it is the resource of the persecuted church. So why do we, we by name, name a different church, a different region, every week? Because they're suffering. We're not in a place of suffering, but just... Just imagine, say, 10 years down the road, if we were facing persecution, and let's say there was an area of the world that was not facing persecution, and they were uh, wealthy, and they had abundance, and their churches were free. And we knew that somewhere, wherever, they were praying for California. Would that encourage you if you were facing persecution? That's why we name churches by by name. When you see that Peter and John were arrested, it says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were facing persecution. They gathered together, and they were praying. So we pray, for the persecuted church. But perhaps you think of it like this. Let's say you're a Christian in school or you're a Christian in college or in the workplace and you're facing mocking from your friends or you're facing possibly a loss of your job because you won't conform to certain standards in the world today. What are you facing? Guess what we can do? When we come together, we pray for that person, that the Lord would work in itself. So, a third use is that it's a resource for the persecuted church. A fourth use is that it's a means of individual deliverance. When you look at chapter 12 of, Hebrew, of Acts, excuse me, it says in verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You know this story is Peter's broken out of prison by an angel, and he's released, and what does he do? He goes, in verse 12, it says, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were what? Who were they praying for? Praying for Peter. So, Peter's in jail. What does the church go and do? They get together and they say, let's go pray for Peter. So, you think about this is if there came a situation where one day, one of us for our faith was in some sort of legal battle, you better believe we were gathering to pray for that person. And actually, the Lord used that. Now, the thing about prayer is it doesn't change God. Who's changed in prayer? We are. Because remember, our prayer is where we bind our hearts together before God, we show our, our, our submission to God, we show our dependence upon God, and that we're united together in this joint effort that we believe God calls us to pray. And that's a means that God uses for deliverance. That's a means that God uses for healing. That's a means that God uses to see people saved, is prayer. When the church gets together to pray. The fifth use is this. Is that it's a means of suggesting missionary operations. Look over to chapter 13. Barnabas and Saul, the greatest missionary team that was ever sent out, was sent out because of a prayer meeting. It says, now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, or Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice the collective aspect of it all. That collectively, there's the preaching of the word, there's the worshiping that's taking place, and there's the prayer taking place. So what's happening here is the church is gathered together, and in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to send off Paul and Barnabas. And then again, that's the greatest missionary team that has ever been assembled. It comes out of a prayer meeting. How serious is the prayer meeting How like how do how do we even approach the prayer meeting? There's a certain I, I don't I don't think that in the Church of Antioch or in the example of, of Peter. Now that was a crisis situation. I don't think they they took it lightly though. I I think that there was a, a heaviness to what they did when they gathered. Don't you? And that doesn't mean there wasn't joy in those things there, but it just seems to me that there's this seriousness that comes with it. And the sixth purpose is this, is that this may be the first step in a new work for Christ. Consider this. The birth of the church happened after what? After a prayer meeting. Look at verse 14 of Acts chapter 1. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What were they devoted to? Notice like the unity of them. And there's about 120 of them together that are praying. Think about this. The first Christian service in Europe... That was Paul's target, right? Europe. The first Christian service in Europe was actually a prayer meeting. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 13. It says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. They had gathered together to pray. Paul goes there to find them, proclaims the gospel, and the Lord opens Lydia's heart, and she receives Christ. What What were they gathered together to do? Pray, and Paul goes to meet them and shares Christ with them. Okay, so... Is the prayer meeting biblical? Are we exhorted by God to gather to pray? Do we have it we have it by exhortation? Do we have it by example? We have it by example. Do we have it do we see it historically in the church preceding movements of God? So is it important for us? to have a prayer meeting. Amen. It is. That's why we gather on Wednesday nights, to have a prayer meeting, is because God calls us to do it. It's not merely tradition. Although I wish it was more of a tradition as it once was. But we do it because this is where we bind our hearts together before God showing our dependency and submission to Him that we need the Lord. And so we lift our voices to him. So going forward, as we'll begin to look at prayers specifically and, and, and how we might be, have Scripture help us in our prayers, my encouragement to us is to, to think about praying when we gather. Let's close. Can oh. I? Yeah. Yeah, we're we're not told whether it was silent or if they were audibly praying. So, uh, yeah, I just know that they gathered to pray, okay. and so I don't I don't know. I would love to have had that information, yeah. but uh, yeah, um, I I kind of get the feeling that they were that they would have been praying. Audibly. Maybe they weren't, maybe they were huddled in silence praying, I don't know. Well, I mean surely there's someone leading prayer. Mm-hmm. There's somebody praying audibly. That's yeah. my suggestion. Like, so I, I guess I'm just asking the question. Do you see it like in your view from what you've read? Do you think we should all be praying out loud? I think that um no, I don't I don't think it, I don't want to bind anyone's conscience that they have to pray. I'm just saying that this is what the church got together and, and did as, as normative. Okay. Um, but I, I don't, I, I'm not going to bind anyone's conscience and say you have to pray. No, right. I know. I'm just thinking like that's what your thought is. And it would, would be more, difficult, more difficult. I don't know. <laughs> I, I will say this, and I'm glad you brought that up, is that, um, is that there's a difference between a worship service prayer and what you see in those examples of them gathering to pray. Like, so in the worship service, we don't just open it up to anyone that wants to pray. Uh, but here tonight, we, we could. And there's, there's, you know, some churches don't do that. They'll, in their prayer meetings, they have it very specified. And um, I think I'm okay to allowing that there could be someone that comes in that prays something that's, you know. But... uh I would say I want to make a distinction between a prayer meeting and the public prayers that you would have in a worship service. Okay. That would be coming from an elder. Okay. Yeah, so you wouldn't have women praying at a worship service but mm-hmm. at a prayer meeting. Don't mind it. Out loud, it would be acceptable. Yeah, I mean that's what I, I see there. Some people don't agree with that, but that's that's what I see in the Book of Acts, okay. and and so I'm 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 totally comfortable with that. Yeah, that's a great question. Again, I think there's some people that you know would respectfully disagree, in that that's fine. But. order? Everything done decently and in order? So you would be heavily moved by the Spirit to pray for someone on your heart, or something. But let's just say, you wouldn't do that in the worship service. That wouldn't be decently and in an order. That's right. But at a prayer meeting, that's so edifying that and building someone up, and I think that would be the whole purpose of that. Yeah, that's a great point. I appreciate you saying that decently and orderly. Yeah, that's good. Gina, you were good. That, well, that's because it was just in the Bible in a year about women. Like day before yesterday, the scripture, whatever it was, um, <laughs> We're all but looking it said at you for the made, answer yes, yes. <laughs> It's no about women being silent and women yeah, oh, okay. being silent. It was just like a couple of days ago. Yeah. So then, and I thought, and I was like, I wonder if that means. But, but I just wait and see if somebody else. Like, if I hear Rachel cry, I think it must be okay. Oh. <laughs> 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 that's your standard. So. <laughs> but you know, I mean that's. You don't, you don't know. Yeah, no, I, 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 um, I went back to Michigan a couple years ago, and so I attended a prayer meeting. And it, there's a really heavily reformed area there, and so I went to a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, and it was very structured. And as a guest there, it's not that I didn't feel welcome to pray, but I just knew that okay, I'm a guest in this place. Their members are gathering. To pray, it was a wonderful service. I wasn't offended by it at all. I was happy to be there, and it was very edifying. Um, but and but no, I don't. I don't hold that view. That so. All right, let's close in prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you that you pour out your Spirit upon your people to give us a desire to lift our hearts up to you. You've called us together on this night for that very purpose. So we thank you for that desire. We thank you for uh, how it is edifying to us, how it builds our fellowship, how we have an opportunity to pray for lost souls, uh, to pray for those suffering. We have an opportunity to rejoice in our prayers for others. We thank you, Father, that you have called us together this evening, that we have been able to pray, look at your word about prayer. We pray that in the coming weeks, it will transform our prayer life as we look at as many of the examples of prayer in Scripture. As we depart from here, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for this coming Lord's Day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.